0: Hey, Hebrews chapter 8 is our text today. And uh, where were we? I have us on verse 5. So, let's go to Hebrews 8 and verse 5. That's where we were last week. <clears throat> um, the topic about Jesus being the high priest who's at the right hand of God, whoever lives to make intercession for us, through whom we have access to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. And now, uh, in Hebrews 8, there's a discussion about the sanctuary in heaven being the true one, and that the one that Moses made on the earth was merely a copy. The, the idea being that Jesus is in the true heavenly tabernacle, that's better. And we don't need to try to make some tabernacle on the earth. Um, does God have a house on the earth is particularly more his than some other place. What do you think? Well he has the temple of the
1: Holy Spirit in us. <laughs> <laughs> he indwells
0: his church. Yeah. yeah. See there is no particular holy object or building in the new covenant. Alright? And so often we talk about the, the the building as the house of God, but really it's a misuse of the term. It's not the building that's the house of God. It's the people that are the household of God. I, I, I remember uh, when I was a Bible college student in the early 70s, when they graduated, the year they graduated back in those days, each senior who was graduating got a, one opportunity to preach a sermon in chapel to the entire student body. And I remember when I was a junior, there was a fellow student a year older than me, and it was his turn... Preach, and the sermon that he preached in chapel to 500 students was this from the King James: "One ought to learn to behave himself in the house of God." And then his sermon was being respectful when you're inside the church building. And I could see my uh, professors were sitting there going, <laughs> "He's graduating." <laughs> And the passage he, the passage he had wasn't even talking about buildings. It actually it was a passage that says, uh, that we behave ourselves in the household of God and that we treat fellow Christians properly. Amen. And so, here this guy was all the way through college and hadn't,
1: uh,
2: good Catholics. <laughs> good Catholics.
1: <laughs> yeah like the, these people that
0: are loitering out on the front steps during the day. I was talking to this one and I asked him, why are you sitting out here all the time? And he says, so I feel closer to God.
1: <laughs>
0: and I says, well, you know, the building's not going to make you closer to God, but let me tell you what will. <laughs> I tell him about Jesus Christ. And I said, what you really should do is actually come in some Sunday and sit under the gospel and then you'll get closer to God. But the building, this, this building isn't closer to God than the Art Institute is.
1: Okay. <laughs> makes you sense, think yeah. the temple, is that one temple God said there won't be one stone left unturned. And I can see it because whenever God wanted a memorial stone, He says, I want a stone that's not cut by man, cut by God. Those stones will stand. This temple, one, one Titus made sure they ripped every stone. There wasn't one stone left of that supposedly mm-hmm. sacred, which it was. Yeah. And it was sacred only if they obeyed, right. which they refused to do. So memorial stones, God says, I don't want you laying your hands on it. It, I carved yeah, that yeah. sacred memorial. When well, you were touching it, carved and touched it. That always uh, seems to come down, man. Yeah, and, yeah. You know what,
0: Dan? If you think about it, in the Old Testament, when God was dwelling in the midst of His people in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, and the glory did fill the temple yes. the Solomon's yes, temple, the priests had were fearful even on the day of atonement to go in there lest they die because of the glory of God. But when the people committed apostasy, the Babylonians went right in there and took all that stuff out and, and didn't kill them. And the same thing happened in 70 A.D. The Roman soldiers overran the temple and, and they didn't die. And so the the relationship that God had with his people and in instituted under the old covenant, which we're going to be talking about today, uh, was a, a powerful and unique thing. But when God instituted the new covenant, there was no longer a building that, that housed God's Particularly, how is God's presence? When the,
2: when the temple, uh, was
0: ripped, that was it. That's the end of that. That's true. When Jesus died, He made access for all people through the gospel to come into the presence of God, and He didn't have to go into a temple. I left the temple and he came. Yeah, Amen. And so the soldiers went in and made any trouble. And there aren't any sacred objects. I know people. You know, they made this movie some years ago, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And when those guys looked into it, they got all you know like melted down. Well, really, it wouldn't work that way, <laughs> but uh, because for one thing, they, nobody saw the ark, and if they did, it wouldn't. It would be not the holy object it actually was in the Old Testament, because now the mercy seat is in heaven, and Jesus' blood was poured out on it. So that's what this verse. Giving all that background, let's look at Hebrews eight five. Here's what it says, talking about these priests that were still serving when this. Uh, was written. Okay? It says, present tense, who serves. So this is evidence that Hebrews was written before 70 AD. Because after 70 AD, they didn't have the priestly service going on because of the destruction of the temple. Alright? Who serve a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses warned by God when he was about to erect the, t- the tabernacle for, quote, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So this is a citation of Exodus 25.40. See also Exodus 25.8. And so the claim is that the Old Testament tabernacle was a pattern of the heavenly. That's what it says here. I, I see I had something I wanted to cite here too. William Lane says this, the contrast developed... It's not simply between an earthly copy and a heavenly archetype, but between the historical situation in the past and one that succeeded it in time. Oh, I, I know why he's saying this. Some critics of Christianity have suggested that this verse in Hebrews 8 5 is actually proof that Christianity was uh, borrowed from Plato. Now, the reason they claim that Christianity is borrowed from Plato is that Plato believed that the true unchanging reality was God and was spiritual, and that everything that we see is simply a passing copy or shadow, not a, not reality. But so, uh, William Lane is, is refuting that claim. And Christianity is not the religion of Plato, because the contrast is, is more than what they say. The contrast develops not simply between an earthly copy and a heavenly archetype, but between the historical situation in the past and one that succeeded it in time. During the former situation, marked by the ministry of the Levitical priest, there was no entrance into the real heavenly presence of God. Full entrance into the eternal presence was made possible only with the life and redemptive accomplishment of Jesus. The celestial sanctuary became a scene for an effective priesthood only from the moment of Christ's exaltation. For the writer of Hebrews, the temporal contrast was decisive. The ministry of the Levitical priests in the tabernacle was antecedent to the ministry exercised in the heavenly It foreshadowed the definitive sacrificial work of Christ that was accomplished centuries later. So what he is saying is, unlike for Plato, where the issue was between the real and the copy, and that's all there was, that there's a time issue, and that in the Old Covenant, this was a valid way to come to God that the sacrifices if offered in faith were looking forward to Christ's sacrifice. So there's a time contrast, not just a heaven versus earth one. Yes?
1: Um, the thing that comes to my mind is that with the temple
0: Right. In the Old Testament, God purposely limited Himself in a, in a sense to condescend to come and meet His people, like He did Moses. But the Bible asserts, as you said, that God's universal glory. It also asserts that no man can see Him and live. And so even in the temple with its glory, that it says when they had the service to inaugurate the Solomon's Temple, that the glory was so great that the priests couldn't stand to minister. But even that, we should realize, is, li- is a limitation of God's ultimate glory. And the, and the other thing the Bible claims concerning glory is that Jesus Christ was the most perfect, um, visible manifestation of the glory of God in the, his person and work. In so much so, if he says, if he's seen me, you've seen the Father.
2: There's another way to look at it. I think we often look at the temple to go into the temple to find God. But in a way, the temple was God's protection of keeping Himself from coming to us and destroying us. Because if His glory in the Solomon's temple wasn't contained behind the Uh uh, veil, they would have died. Yes, exactly. Since Christ is doing the same thing, that there's this heavenly temple. That heavenly temple came, and we were covered by Christ. We would be destroyed as well. Yeah. So we
0: need the blood atonement in order to be coming to God's presence.
2: And and, and it
0: says that the Bible the Bible says that Jesus' blood was poured out once for all. Diane. Well, um, they don't understand that. I think the reason for that is that it's, we're at the end of the age. It says in um, uh, Daniel 9 that in, during Daniel's 70th week, there will be sacrifices going on. And Antichrist will put an end to it uh, after three and a half years and set himself up as the object. So, I actually, actually, what's going on is is... Uh, getting ready for fulfillment of end-time prophecy, but the delusion is that they think that this is what they need, not realizing that what they really need is Christ. And Antichrist is going to use that to deceive the Jewish people for three and a half years, but then they'll know that they've been deceived when he sets himself up the abomination of desolation. And then, well, if you read Revelation, it gets really bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it says here, it's about something, being, uh, one of the passages says what is obsolete and ready to pass away. And so, um, yeah, the temple that will be there during the Great Tribulation will be probably built with Antichrist under his auspices. And it's interesting how the roots of prophecy are in history. And it's, when I had this debate on Jan's radio show, with a wonderful guy, Pastor Chansky was a wonderful guy, I, I really thought he was one of the better amillennials I've known. He just has this one flaw.
1: Um, (laughs) But he was a nice
0: guy. But we were talking about that and there's always this tendency to make an either-or. And and that's what they try to do in a debate. It's not either-or. The the roots of prophecy are in history. God has so ordained that things happen throughout history that in their happening foreshadows the greater thing that happens at the end. And this can be a good thing or a bad thing. The bad thing. What is, if you believe in a literal future tribulation, as I do, what's it all about? Well, it's the wrath of Antichrist and the wrath of the world against the Jews, ultimately. And where did that come from? Well, how long has anti-Semitism been on the scene of history? How many times have they launched pogroms against the Jews? Many, many times, starting with Haman in book of Esther, wanted to destroy all the Jews. Well, let's go back to Pharaoh. We have Pharaoh. We got Haman. And what about this um, Herod is an interesting character. He was married to a Jew. He loved her very much, only he killed her. Um, Because he was a tyrant who was paranoid about anybody that might gain power. So he killed a lot of people. But Herod, in a sense, is almost a prototypical Antichrist type character. Because what Herod did was he made the second temple into what it was during Jesus' day. And he had, uh, he, he had used his huge wealth to make the Seneca temple into a Herod's temple, ultimately a beautiful, magnificent structure. And he had endeared himself to the Jews by doing so. But he was hardly their friend. Uh, he, he didn't believe in anybody but Herod. Yeah, and he tried to kill Messiah. So, so, and then after Herod, comes in one of the greatest destructions ever, worse than 70 A.D., was Hadrian in 135, in this Bar Kochba revolt, who totally destroyed Jerusalem and Israel and drove the Jews out of their land, it's where they stayed out until 1948. Now, here's another guy, <laughs> uh, Hadrian, pogrom against the Jews. What about Hitler another pogrom against the Jews. He's going to kill all the Jews. So what, what, how, how does this work that I'm saying the roots of prophecy are in history? You can see the forces and beliefs going on throughout history that all become concentrated and focused in that last seven years before Christ comes to destroy the world uh, and bring judgment. It comes to judgment, I should say, at the battle of Armageddon and in this focused time, the things that happened have already happened, only they're going to be more intense. I'm going to preach on this this morning in Matthew 24. But this, this last pogrom against the Jews will be the mother of all pogroms against the Jews. there will be all the nations of the world surrounding Jerusalem. The armies of all the nations. We're going to once and for all solve the Jewish problem, the world says. All right? We're, yeah, there's a little bitty land that can't grow much anything if they weren't there. And God is going to intervene yes. in the battle of Armageddon to save his people. And so, the why did I say all this? I, I remember now.
1: <laughs> Her, Herod, Herod
0: helped the Jews build a temple to endear himself, but he didn't have their best interests in mind. Antichrist is going to do the same thing, in my opinion. Uh, okay, Dan, and then...
1: That uh, endeared himself to the people, and he said, "My gosh, that isn't a man talking to us. That's God." That's a different the angel of the Lord <laughs> struck him, and his that, guts spilled out. So the people loved him, but God didn't care. That was, was a different different That was one of one of
0: his sons. That was one of his sons.
1: Well, there's the Herod. Yeah, mean, his example. He yeah, said.
0: he was going to be a god. Yes.
1: I, that's a good question, Dean,
0: and I don't understand it either.
1: Um,
0: I, I talked. We talked about it on the radio one time with this Kai Gilbertson, and I think that uh, here's how I understand it. I don't understand it, but during the millennium, I'm sure I will.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, yes.
1: Okay. And, it was, uh, and, and we can read that during Paul's time there was a famine in the land. You know, because mm-hmm. they were sending really relief to Jerusalem yes. at the time. Yes. Yes. So, Okay. Where, where, where Jesus Christ, when He comes back, will build the temple. So, you know, Jesus Christ isn't going to come back until He sets up His kingdom. So, you know, I don't believe that for the, 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 the Antichrist to be manifest. I think those are
0: that's a different prophecies. Yeah, I, I did too. I think that the Ezekiel temple is a different one than the one that Daniel's talking about in Daniel's 70th week, where the where the wing of abominations comes in. Uh, that certainly has to do with the Antichrist, the 70th week, but the millennial, whatever goes on during the millennial kingdom will be a good thing. That's when the Jesus goes. Yeah. If, if, it, and how that's going to be, I don't, we only just have a vague understanding, but I think when it happens, it all will be made clear. Like the first advent, I talked about this at the debate. At the first advent, if you were a Jew in 10 B.C. and you got out all the scriptures that had to say about Messiah, if you could even comprehend them all,
2: Hundreds and hundreds
0: of them. You're reading those. It's 10 B.C. And you're going, would you be able to sort it all out? No, absolutely not. Because you would think, well, this is going to be a son of David, and he's going to sit on a throne, and he's going to destroy Israel's enemies. But what's this thing about lowly riding on a donkey? And what's this thing about suffering? And you look at them all, and it would be very hard to figure out. But when it actually happens, we can see clearly that there's two advents that in the first one, he did come lowly riding on a donkey. And that at the second one, he's going to come on a white stallion from the clouds of heaven. Amen. I quoted that at the debate from Edersheim. He quoted rabbis who tried to figure it out. Before the time of Jesus, rabbis were debating it. And they were saying, is Messiah coming in the clouds of heaven or is he coming on a donkey? We can't understand it. And one of the rabbis tried to resolve the conflict by saying, well, if we're worthy, he'll come in the clouds of heaven. If we're unworthy, he'll come on a donkey. Uh, and he was almost right there. But the fact is, he's going to come two times once on a donkey, once in the clouds of heaven. Amen. And in a sense, they will be worthy at the second advent, not because of any human worthy, but because they'll have looked upon him when they pierce, and they'll come to faith. And he'll be coming to save them. Isn't that amazing?
1: So, Christianity
0: Amen. And it's ironic because no conqu- a conquering king is going to come on a war stallion with his with his army. And the, a king coming back to the city, coming into a city, always came with a royal regatta of uh, you know accolades. And, and although Jesus was gaining the accolades, he was on this lowly beast of burden, which was a prophetic fulfillment according of Zechariah. Well, let's go to verse six here, okay? But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. We have better covenant and better promises. Obtained in the Greek is in the perfect tense. It means something that happened and continues to be in effect. So this obtaining the ministry of high priest happens at his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. It continues in effect where he's the mediator of a better covenant that is the new covenant. Um, remember at the debate, somebody somebody who didn't believe in future prophecy threw this one at me and during the question time, which I, I was surprised the guy debating didn't bring it up because they usually do. He asked the question, doesn't the book of Hebrews say that the new covenant is for us, the church, that we've entered into the new covenant? But doesn't the book of Jeremiah say that the new covenant is for the house of Israel? So since the New Testament says that this covenant, which was for the house of Israel, is now what the church enters into, isn't that proof of replacement theology, that the church replaced Israel?
1: Well, yeah, it's
0: always a false dilemma. And my answer was, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. The promise was given to Israel, and it still is validly given to Israel. But because of what happened with the rejection of Messiah, the church is grafted into this Jewish olive tree and we do enter the New Covenant. Now, some prophecy teachers say there's two different New Covenants, but I think they're overcomplicating it. There's one New Covenant that we are entering into by faith as grafted in and that at the end, when all Israel is saved, they're brought into the New Covenant which was promised to them. It
1: does anything? Grafted in? Grafted in back. Time. God is able so to graft it back so in. in. You're the wild mm-hmm. branch and grafted in contrary to nature, but the day is coming when the natural branch will be grafted in. Right. Okay,
0: so, so there's one new covenant, in my opinion, with all due respect to my other uh, dispensational friends who say that there are two. But I believe there's one new covenant. It's the one prophesied in Jeremiah. We're entering into it by faith, by God's mercy. We aliens to the commonwealth of Israel without hope and without God in the world, but God being rich in his mercy, wherewith he loved us, has brought us together, brought us near, according to Ephesians 2, and made us with the Jews one new man. And the Bible says that in the end all Israel will be saved, and he will do that more natural thing, which is to save the natural branches and bring them into the new covenant that God promised them in Jeremiah 31. Alright, so that's it. The better covenant is the new covenant. And the new covenant is the one promised in Jeremiah because it's cited here in the book of Hebrews. Okay, we... Don't do that. We are... Got a cross-reference here finally. Where should I start? I don't know. How about starting in the middle? (laughs) No! (laughs) I see that end. (laughs) He was hiding. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 3... 6 through 11. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 11. Oh, yeah, that's a good section. I think I know what it's about. There was only one cross reference? Yeah. 2 Corinthians 3, through 11. 3, 6 through 11. Yeah. I'm ready. We're all ready. Who has qualified us to
1: be ministers of the new covenant? Not in a written code, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. Not at the dispensation of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as the... Let the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor. For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed the splendor. Indeed, in this case, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all because of the splendor that surpassed it. For if what faded away
0: Same argument, into all. So we, um, so we watched the movie The Ten Commandments and we see Charlton Heston come down. <laughs> okay. And the glory of God, so, I mean, portraying Moses. Moses had so much glory from being in the presence of God that they had to put a veil over his face. And Paul is arguing in Second Corinthians that that was very glorious. But he called it administration of death. And the reason being because of the sinfulness of the people and the breaking of God's law. They died in the wilderness. But that Jesus is the glory of Jesus Christ is far surpassing the reflected glory on Moses' face. And we, as, all, as elsewhere in that passage said, with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. Now how? In what sense are we beholding the glory of the Lord? Well, the veil has been taken off. The veil of sin, darkness, death, has been removed from our unbelieving hearts through the gospel. And that having that veil removed, we see things that angels desire to look into. The messianic salvation, the glory of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is far surpassing that glory that was displayed on the mountain. That was the argument there in a fantastic passage there Second Corinthians chapter 3. Wow, so much scripture and so little time. To, uh, William Lane says this: the new covenant required a, a new mediator, but it, but, it, but his life of perfect obedience and it, by his life of perfect obedience and his death, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 to thirty four. His entrance into the heavenly sanctuary guarantees God's acceptance of his sacrifice and the actualization of the provisions of a superior covenant he mediated. The new covenant is superior because it is based on better promises. Amen. Yeah. Better promises.
1: So then, how could it ever be anything of us, even if we had the most explicit discipleship? We said in history, everything from Genesis to Revelation is what God has done, what He's fulfilled. Everything His work, His finished work, His perfect sacrifice. Amen. So even our best discipleship, serving God, if we got played down here, 6,000 there, it's still nothing compared to the finished work. So some will go to heaven and it's by fire. Some will be greatly rewarded in heaven. But the whole thing is on the finished work. What He's done is all His glory.
0: Yeah, we're going to actually talk about that when in the, in the prophecy in Jeremiah about the new covenant. It says, No man will say to his brother, Know the Lord. For they'll all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. How could it be? Well, not, not everybody knows the Lord. So what does that mean now? Well, the only way you can partake in the New Covenant is to know the Lord. And so if you don't know the Lord, you're not part of it. And so everybody who is a part of it does know the Lord. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a part of it. Yeah. And so this New Covenant isn't a genetic people. It isn't a geopolitical entity. Because if it was, then you'd have people you'd have to say know the Lord to. America isn't the new covenant. Not a, <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: it's uh, it's so, you have to know the Lord to even be part of it, and you know the Lord through the Gospel. It says in Hebrews 8 and verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for a second. Um, now, let me read verse 8. Uh, we see what the fault was. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the old days are coming when I will effect a new covenant. So, the fault with the old one wasn't God's fault.
1: No.
0: It was the, the fact that people rejected it and sinned and rebelled. The, the, fault of the,
2: new, the fault of the old covenant was that it was dependent on people who were faulty. Yeah, what does it say about the
0: law? Weak as it was through the flesh. They yeah, have faulty people. The law of God is holy according to Romans 7. God's law is true it pure, it's pure is holy, but sinners can't keep it. So we need a, a mediator of a covenant that will forgive sins and write laws on our hearts. And that's another thing that's true of the new covenant. Laws are written on hearts. God circumcised hearts. God gives us the chance to serve Him from, the, from a heart of righteousness that He gives us by grace through faith. Yes, Norm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh I guess I'm wondering what what you're feeling is. You know, we have people they put the Ten Commandments on monuments and they have monuments and put them up, and, and the Ten Commandments as a group, the Ten Commandments, really held up as, as something very special. Mm-hmm. Yet that was the core of the old covenant. And now we look at as, as a new covenant. How appropriate is that to be looking?
0: at Okay. A good question. The question is, well, you know, how appropriate and what, what effect would the take commandments? And should we, should we go have a big fight to see if we can have them on a piece of granite down here at City Hall or not? Um, well, the political part of the fight is that the Judeo-Christian belief is that God's revealed law stands at the root of Western civilization. Alright? And that some of the cherished ideas we have in Western civilization can be traced all the way back to Moses which I believe is true. now, But that's a political fight. As far as spiritually, uh, what function do the Ten Commandments have? Well, well, let's just take the law in general. The law still has an important function. Amen. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The law shows us our need for the gospel. The law shows us that we're guilty Amen. and that we need an atonement. And so we believe in preaching the law and the gospel. The law is a declaration of God's will moral will, all right? That shows us that we're sinners. The gospel is God's offer of forgiveness. Now there are many today who say, Don't preach the law, that's a bad thing. Keith knows about that. He heard somebody on the radio doing that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Paul actually used that. What Keith said is
0: actually Paul's argument in Romans seven. Romans said the commandment slayed me. He says I would have been all right. Remember the rich young ruler? He says, "What do you What do you read? What's the law say?" The rich young ruler. What was his answer? Remember? Yeah, and and he says, "Well, I've done. No, I kept these things from my youth up." He said a few of them. I kept these things from my youth up. He said, "Okay, that's good." Well, there's one more thing. Sell all you have and. Give to the poor come follow me. Oh, the covetousness
1: right one. The covetousness one. <laughs> uh, you couldn't give by that. yes. Okay, so then holding up the Ten Commandments really is holding up an inferior standard. Well, it's, if we
0: hold up the Ten Commandments, an inferior standard, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's an inferior standard, and Jesus says if you lust in your heart, you committed adultery. So, he made it even di- more difficult, didn't he?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, he didn't keep the one about covetousness. He
1: was a liar. But
0: Paul said this. The, 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 he, t- he mentioned the, 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 the Tenth Commandment as the one that slew him, using the King James. <laughs> it killed his self-righteousness. Because if he would have been honest, when he, when he was a Pharisee, Paul and Philippians said, concerning righteousness that's in the law, blameless. In other words, none of his Pharisaical cohorts would have ever found something wrong in Paul. Taking a look at Paul and how he lived, he's fine. He's one of our best. But according to, but then later in Romans 7, he says, the commandment slew me, killed me he couldn't he couldn't he had to admit that even as a Pharisee he coveted and he was breaking God's law yeah daniel yes well, because he was asked to make it not his, and he didn't want to do that in other words, if he would have made it, he wanted it so bad he didn't want it to be not his. If he sold it and gave it to the poor, it would be not his.
1: So it was a potential. Yeah. what you want or as much as or what you can get. the fact that nature is, the sin
0: <laughs> nature <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah, what does it say about the, a guy in uh, Luke 12? He had all the barns and he built more, and he said, Thou, and he says to him, he talks to himself, I do that too. <laughs> At least you know somebody's listening, right? Uh, he says, He says to self, self, take thy needs. And he says, Thou fool. And what, because today your life's required of you, and who's going to own what you own? And it says, Even in a New American Standard, which is a, is a good translation of the Greek in that particular passage. Even when he has an abundance, a man's life doesn't consist in the things he possesses. Yes. Yeah, it is idolatry. Yeah, giving ultimacy. It says that in the Bible. Call it covetousness, which is idolatry. It actually says that. And it's putting ultimacy in something besides God himself. And when Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell all you have and follow me, what he was offering to him was himself. And the implication was that Jesus is God. He is a proper object of devotion and worship. And that if this man lost everything else and gained Jesus Christ in his kingdom, he'd be even richer. He'd be even richer than he was, and he wouldn't know it. And John MacArthur has had a series out there lately called Richer Than You Think. And it isn't the health and wealth
2: gospel. <laughs>
0: it's, it, you just don't imagine the riches of the kingdom because they can't see it. We have to have it by faith. Yes. Okay, yeah, I can. Yeah, what do you say to somebody that thinks
1: that,
0: you know, they are the things they are? Well, you, you preach the gospel to them, the law and the gospel. The, the, the Bible says thou shalt not covet. Uh, the gospel is a call to repent and believe. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and come to God on His terms. That's true. And, and it says in James' life is like a little vapor. A little while and it passes away. Um, and, of course, there's the old... Uh, Bible verse, there's no pockets in coffins? No, that's not a Bible verse. (laughs) (laughs) That's
2: in Hezekiah.
0: That's a a human aphorism that basically saying the same thing, yes. Yeah, I, the Bible doesn't say that. I don't know if that was a church tradition. Maybe it was a church tradition. I think that's what yeah. I think I had heard that, but I don't think there's, you know, you don't know. But 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost that were Jewish people we gathered in Jerusalem. Who knows which ones they were? And there could have been a lot. I mean, obviously, out of these 3,000 that were saved, there were people that were probably, that were there. I mean, some of them were pilgrims, but the Jerusalem. Yeah. Well, there were also probably people there who were crying out, Crucify Him, crucify Him. Because remember, Peter said to them, This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. So some of the very people who yelled out, Crucify Him, some of them were saved on the day of Pentecost and were worshiping the one that they'd rejected. And the God does that. God does that. Because I was one of those. I was a blasphemer and God saved me. Amen. So, Amen. No, the, uh, we don't know. The leadership, uh, amongst the leadership, I think it did say there were a few who believed. It didn't say that. Did Joseph, and Nicodemus, they, just... they, 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 they were both leadership type people. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, was, there were a couple even amongst the higher-ups, the, the rulers. There were even a couple. And God saves a remnant. Even saves rich men. How hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, it says. that with God, all things are possible. In the early church, there was a document written that was, says, who is the rich man being saved? And then they, they struggled with the application of these things in the Gospels because they were wondering, well, if some rich people got saved, do we have to make them give up all their money? Like Jesus told the rich young ruler, and they were trying to understand that in the early church.
1: <laughs> yeah, you don't have to worry
0: about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've never had to worry about that one either. <laughs> Glad it's not me. You know, I got I got an email from somebody the other day who doesn't know who I am, and he, he emailed me and he says, they must have gone to every preacher you can find on the internet, and he says, if you want to be a true preacher of God, and you call yourself a pastor, here's what you need to do. This is what the email said. It says, preach the gospel, repent and believe, go out of the streets and preach, repent and believe, and the people who do repent and believe, disciple them, and you'll be pleasing God. Like, well, good. <laughs> I, I don't know what he. Did. I thought he was going to shame me or something, but that's exactly what we believe in doing, and that's what we, by God's grace. Yeah, I wish I could do more, but uh, doing the best we we need to preach the gospel. And the disciple believers. Let's look at Hebrews eight eight. For finding fault with them, he says, "Behold, the days are coming," says the Lord, "when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah." That was the one that was quoted at the debate by the guy that asked the question. Is the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Yes. Has do we enter into the new covenant? Yes. Yes. Why? Because God grafted us into the Jewish (laughs) tree. All right, Jeremiah twenty four seven. Dave Sorry, Here, Jeremiah 24 and verse 7. And I have a quote here. Uh, 209 uh, Lane, it says this, The supersession of the old covenant was not due simply to the unfaithfulness of the people to the stipulations of the covenant. It occurred because of a new unfolding of God's redemptive person, purpose had taken place, which called for a new covenant, a new covenant action on God's part. God took the initiative and announcing his intention to establish a new covenant with Israel in the case that he fully intended the first covenant to be provisional. Now, the reason that's important is this. It's, don't think that God tries something and then it fails, so he has to figure out something different. Yeah, God isn't... Well, that's what the open view says. Yeah, the open view says, Well, God's trying things and that doesn't work. He tries. So he's he just have to try until he finds something that works. Now, the Bible says that God has this all planned out from all eternity. And that the new covenant was just as much as you, as the old covenant. And the old covenant had its purpose in God. And it was not like God has to play catch up with his own plans. He's uh, executing them all along. So, Jeremiah 24 and verse 7. Amen. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I'm going to preach on that one. Uh, I think i got a slide on that one for the PowerPoint for the sermon.
2: That theme,
0: that's the covenant theme. They will be my people, I will be their God. That is the covenant formula. It's actually the old covenant. And so, it was a unique thing when God revealed Himself to the patriarchs and made these promises, and then when he revealed himself to Moses and he brought this people to himself on Sinai, he made them a people. No, that's not the sermon today. That was in my Sunday school lesson here. Okay. So many scriptures, I get confused. <laughs> the sermon's in Matthew 24. Uh, and so, you'll be my people, and I'll be your God is a covenant formula. And it was a unique thing in the ancient world. And what was unique about it was that the, the pagans in Canaan, the the peoples, they believed that the gods were for gods for territories. Land-based. They were land based gods, exactly. And, and 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 if you and if you, you had to be careful because if you went into a different territory, you better figure out who the god was and pay due homage, or you could get in trouble because your god didn't go with you when you when you went to a different territory. And you know, just yeah, yeah, that that the teaching about the territorial spirits in in the church, is a false teaching because it's just based on paganism. That you have different gods over different territories, you have to figure out what they are or you're going to be in trouble. Now, in the case of the spiritual warfare teachers, they say you have to figure out which gods are over which territories so you can rebuke them. But it's really no different than us pagans, that whether you're trying to pacify or rebuke them, you're still believing in gods over territories. Well, with the, with the rulers. rulers are principalities, uh, but it's so
1: we can argue that we still
0: yeah, the difference would be that the spiritual warfare teachers believe in monotheism, but as far as how history works out on the face of the earth, it's a battle between us and these demigods, or and. It's the like God at War. Greg Boyd's book holds that same view. He, Greg Boyd, I gave him credit. He's more honest than most of these people. He admits that his view comes from the pagans. But he believes that the Old Testament shares the pagan worldview. And, and since the Old Testament was, you know, written by people living in Canaan, they shared this, this view. And kind of, you have an integration between monotheism. You have God, who doesn't know the future or control the future. And then you have these gods, who are working on the scene of history, who are controlling. It's like delegated jurisdiction, God has all jurisdiction, he's given it. Yeah, and and they're determining the fate of peoples unless the people wake up and figure out a way of of canceling out their bad fate. That is literally a pagan world view. Okay, so that's reflected by Nabon. by the way, when he thought, I mean, he just, he came to know the God of Israel, but he thought he better bring some dirt back. Remember, he was going to bring dirt back with him because, you know, let bring some of this land, some of this territory so I can worship this God of Israel. I don't want my own gods anymore. So he was thinking that way. So uh, you can also see this in Kings where they were having this battle and they were, they were fighting the Israelites and the Israelites were, were winning and they were on the hills. Yeah, they were in the valleys and they were winning and they thought, well, maybe their God is a God of the valleys. Let's fight them on the mountaintops because then their God, you know, would run out of his jurisdiction and then maybe we could beat him there now the, the, the Old Testament says he's a God for a people he's a God for a people and he says to his people I will be you, your God you shall be my people and even if these people are scattered throughout the nations they're still his people and the Jews are still his people we had a debate on that one. Oh, that came up, didn't it? Didn't that come up in the debate? Uh, he said, "No, you can't say the Jews are God's people. You can't say that anymore." As soon as I heard that, I was going, "Oh boy, rebuttal time!" <laughs>
1: uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, I was so excited. Yeah, well,
0: <laughs> I got this. I got my Bible open, and it was my turn. I said, "They are to His people. What does it say? Romans eleven one. God has not rejected His people." 4 4:0 Who are you no. talking about? The Jews. About. The <laughs> yeah, but in the present, this is Paul's writing present oh, tense. Yeah, yeah. Keep up in the debate. Oh, oh. Okay, I'm running out of time.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna get as excited hey, as you, Dad. Yeah. Better be careful. I'll start shouting.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh,
0: <laughs> God is a God for uh, people, and uh, and so God bless you and. Sermon today is going to be on Matthew 24, 1 through 14. So we're going to talk about Bible prophecy. So God bless you.